This is Sit Rep on BFBS. David Cameron meets President Karzai in Kabul and has a stern message for the Taliban. You cannot wait this out until foreign forces leave in 2014 because we will be firm friends and supporters of Afghanistan long beyond then. After the G4S fiasco, how secure are the London Olympics? And it's 40 years since the battle for Murbat, described by some as the SAS's most heroic fight. Hello, this is Glenn Manslin for Kate Jabot for this week's Sitrep. Now, the Prime Minister held talks with the Afghan President Hamid Karzai in Kabul. David Cameron signed an agreement to build an officer's training academy in Afghanistan modelled on Sandhurst. Yesterday, he visit, visited British troops in Helmand. At a joint news conference with President Karzai, Mr Cameron stressed Britain's continuing commitment to Afghanistan beyond 2014 when its combat troops leave the country. We do share the same vision for Afghanistan, a secure, stable and democratic country that never again becomes a haven for international terror and we are working together to achieve it. We're building up Afghan forces so they can protect your citizens and keep out violent extremists once the international forces leave because a stable Afghanistan is not just in the interests of Afghans but in the interests of their neighbours too. Mr Cameron also urged the Taliban to renounce violence. This sends a very clear message to the Taliban that you cannot wait this out until foreign forces leave in 2014 because we will be firm friends and supporters of Afghanistan long beyond then. So now is the time for everyone to participate in a peaceful political process in Afghanistan. All those who renounce violence, who respect the constitution, can choose to have a voice in the future prosperity of this country rather than continuing in fighting to destroy it. The two men went on to meet Pakistan's new Prime Minister, Raja Pervez Ashraf. Mr Cameron said all three had shared interests in establishing a stable and secure Afghanistan. I'm joined now by Director of the Royal United Services Institute, Professor Michael Clark, and our own BFBS defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Professor Clark, first of all, how important is it for the future of Afghanistan that these three men meet face to face? Oh, it's pretty critical. Um, and in a way, the British Prime Minister is acting as the catalyst to bring President Karzai and President Ashraf together, Karzai of Afghanistan, Ashraf of, of Pakistan. Interestingly, you know, this used to happen in 2005, 2006 um, on a reasonably regular basis because there was a, you know, there, there was a, a better diplomacy, but things have gone pretty frosty since then because ultimately, ultimately, um, it, it, Pakistan is the key to what happens in Afghanistan. So if, if the Pakistani Prime Minister is not included in this process, if there can't be a diplomatic rapprochement between Pakistan and Afghanistan at the senior level, then nothing else will work. So full marks to the Prime Minister at creating or recreating this tripartite discussion. Christopher, your views on how important it is for Pakistan's Prime Minister to be involved? Enormously important. As Mike says, Pakistan is, in some ways you could say, was the key to the future of, uh, of uh, Afghanistan. We've got to remember it in the wider context which concerns both the Af Afghans and also the Pakistanis, and that is India, and also the Central Asian republics, because they too have a role in this whole 
uh, idea of the future. You have the uh, animosities between, for example, India and Pakistan. The Indians don't want the Pakistanis to have too much influence. The Pakistanis don't want the Indians to have too much in- influence. And that is almost 150, 200 years of, uh, of animosities anyway when you consider it was, when it was all one, all one place. So it's absolutely essential, this sort of meeting... And considering, of course, the difficulties that have been in Pakistan with the removal of senior officials and ministers uh, on corruption charges. David Cameron's warned the Taliban not to wait it out until international combat forces leave in 2014 because British support for the country would remain long after that date. Are we likely to see the Taliban attempt to regain power, Michael Clark? We're certainly likely to see the Taliban try something. I mean, I think the, di- the difference will be there'll almost certainly, almost certainly be Taliban-inspired attacks on the Afghan security forces and quite likely on, on British forces as they pull out. That's almost inevitable. The question will be, would it be a coherent campaign? Could the Taliban put together a coherent campaign with some sort of local support after 2014? Now, I don't think they can. Some people say they can, but I don't think they can, and they certainly won't have much local support. So, yes, they will try to establish uh, or re-establish some power, but I don't think they will succeed. But it will be a rocky ride, and we we shouldn't uh, delude ourselves that the the atmosphere in 2040 is, is going to be benign. It will be quite dangerous and difficult, and there will be attacks. Christopher, let's look at the other thread of this. Sandhurst in the sand. Uh, it's good, isn't it? Um, is, what is essential... In any emerging uh, state, as, uh, as Afghanistan is, is right across the civilian side of your society, the bureaucratic side and certainly the military side, is that great middle management that you need. And the idea of an academy is to produce people which I would eventually call, for example, at the company commander level. Uh, senior and so, but company commander Neville, people actually hold all these newly emerging forces together. That is the great value uh, of actually doing it, you know, to teach tactics, to teach uh, how you run an army, etc. And nobody holding your hand. The ANA, the Afghan National Army, is essential for the security. The other, uh, and, and I suppose observers and the military are saying, yeah, we can actually sort of sort this in some form. What they're not sure about are police. And the police, you've got big problems and no number of academies will ever sort the problem of the police. Well, not, certainly not in the future, uh, as far as we can see, and certainly not by 2014, 2015. So if you've got one aspect of security in the country that you can't 100% rely on, what sort of impact will the training of army officers have? Well, it's even more essential to make sure that you've got the ANA on, on stream that you've got them working efficiently, because after all, they're the people that are actually going in, into the front line. Uh, they're the people that have got to actually have not only local knowledge, but international knowledge as well. These are the people that eventually are going to have to work very closely with, the, uh, for example, uh, Pakistan intelligence. They're going to have to do all those roles. But don't forget, of course, the Americans are not actually pulling out um, they're reducing their forces. They have a, a sort of withdrawal. There'll still be these training roles. There'll still have to be force protection for them. And how do you keep some of the border people, like the, uh, uh, for example, like Taliban, uh, on their toes? It may be we will not see the departure of the drones. It may be that we will see uh, a continuing uh, attacks on those drones, which the Pakistanis hate. 
and they have told them so. That is, means that it's not the civilian like the, the meeting today with the president. It is the uh, Pakistan army. Pakistan army feel as if they've been uh, uh, second-lined. And every time you hear something happening, it's coming from the Pakistan army, not the civilians. Let's come home now. The Labour leader, Ed Miliband, has said the scandal over security at the Olympics involving the film G4S Beggar's Belief. Three and a half thousand troops have been forced to step in because the firm hasn't got enough trained staff to honour its contract to secure Olympic sites. BFBS's Olympic security correspondent James Banks joins us now. James, uh, there's been more criticism of the security arrangements at the Games with the Commons Public Accounts Committee now telling the Home Office to get a grip on G4S and LOCOG. What else does their report say? Well, there's three main areas that the, the Parliament's public spending watchdog are keen to find out more about. Firstly, the cost. The cost of the security has doubled over 2010 to 2011. For, and then secondly, why was the underestimation of the numbers needed for securing the Olympics? And then finally, will G4S receive this cash, these millions of pounds are going to be given for a job that they've not really, well, not looking like they're going to complete fully? Uh, the underlying message from them was that they were frustrated by the lack of transparency in the true cost of the Olympics. And then, of course, as I referred to earlier, there is that G4S debacle, which has led the chairman, Margaret Hodge, even before the Olympic athletes have finished arriving at the, the Olympic Village, to talk about the, uh, the post-mortem that will take place after the Games. I will want to see the actual contract that was signed with uh, G4S so that we can see whether or not the taxpayer got value for money and whether or not the uh, government is getting back from GPRS the right amount uh, given that they have failed to perform. Three and a half thousand extra troops have been drafted in. Are we likely to see any more being called up for this? Well, I don't think we can discount it at the moment. Um, I think we're still un, you know, unravelling the situation as it goes on. Earlier this week, I was down in, in Dorset, down at Weymouth, where they're holding the, the sailing events, and I was speaking to the police down there. And they were saying they only found out that they were going to have to backfill uh, the G4S role when they went to hand over uh, a secure venue, and the G4S security guards simply weren't there in the numbers. So as we get closer to the, the opening venue, opening event, we will probably find out the true extent. Um, so I don't think it's a decision that's yet been made, and we have to wait, as I said, for the true extent before we can we can set the, the contribution of the armed forces, can we actually be set in stone? General Parker, the man in charge of the Olympic um, the contribution by the military, was visiting people who were training in Germany yesterday, uh, and he said it was too early to tell, but he was keen to ensure that people realised that he thought that the armed forces, it was their job to step up and step in when the, uh, this debacle had taken place. London is holding the Olympics, and it's a one-in-a-generation event. And the security has not gone according to plan and defence and the army has had to step in to make it work. So we're doing our duty and I think I can't apologise for doing our duty. I think that's what we do if we're in the army. General Parker also went on to say that people who had booked holidays would be re refunded and that troops would not pay for food or accommodation whilst on the Olympic duties, so what they called field conditions. 
And on the, the subject of accommodation, a photo did emerge earlier on a social networking site uh, reportedly showing military personnel sleeping on airport-style benches. Um, unverified, it floated around the ether as these things do, but the MODR are keen to confirm that their stance that everybody has a bed for the, the Olympics. Uh, and the picture, they say, merely could have showed the guys uh, having a bit of downtime. Culture Secretary Jeremy Hunt's been defending the contingency plan today. What's he been saying? Well, of course, he, he can't fail to admit that they have been let down very badly, but he is focusing very much on the positives. So far, so good, he's saying, that things are, you know, the contingency plans have kicked in and they've worked. There's a great buzz in the village. The New Zealanders have put up their totem pole. The Canadians have um, got a life-size moose. I mean, you know, this project is actually going very well. And, um, you know, we had this hitch with G4S. We put in place our plan B and... The public can rest assured that the security as well is something that we won't make any compromises on. I'm not, however, convinced that the tales of national pride and, and totem poles will completely silence the critics. And, of course, we won't find out whether we have got over this glitch until the, uh, the public start arriving at the end of next week. BPS's Olympic security correspondent, James Banks, thank you. Christopher, we've had the whole Olympic security plans explained to us for months now. A no-fly zone, air defence missiles on the top of blocks of flats, the Royal Air Force's tornadoes on standby, and even HMS Ocean on the Thames. But it's all been let down by the final piece of the plan, the final final ring of security around Olympic venues. How has it happened? Okay, uh, let's, let's, I think we ought to get slightly away from it's been let down. G4S, we know, has goofed. But the contingency came in straight away. I mean, people just didn't, just didn't sit there and say, now what do we do? The biggest test is yet to come. The biggest test is the simplicity of any terrorist attack. You know, one guy with a, with, with a lousy waistcoat can cause all sorts of damage. And what you get is one bang, and does everybody head for the tunnel? Everybody head for the door. The biggest test is, is not so much the bag searches, etc. The biggest test will be the coordination of this whole thing. Now, there's nothing wrong with that as far as we can see at the moment. That's in place. But just supposing uh, you've got something going on, you get a report, let's say, from North London that something, there might be an incident. You get a report from South London that might be an incident. How do you verify them? How do you divert forces to them? Uh, how do you handle it? It's that coordination which has been rehearsed, 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 exercise and exercise. That is going to be the great test of whether the security system works or could ever work as people advertise. Michael Clark, in your opinion, what's the main threat here? The, the, the threat that everyone worries about is terrorism, of course, and that was the, the, the view three years ago, two years ago. Then last year, the security authorities began to think, well, actually, um, we've got, we face a problem of maybe um, Northern Ireland terrorist uh, acts of some sort. We face a problem of maybe civil disorder in anti-globalization protesters or even pressure groups just trying to make a point. And one of the things that I know the Olympic organizers are very worry, worried about is some sort of um, flash camping being set up inside the venue. So when you get your bag searched, if, anybody, if anyone looks as if they're carrying in a tent pole or tent pegs, I promise you they won't get in because there are 25,000 journalists coming to the Games and only 10,000 of them will be watching the sport. The other 15,000 are there to observe London, observe the atmosphere. So if anybody puts up a tent with a sign on it, 
um, it will go to four billion people around the world instantly. So it doesn't have to be significant, it simply has to happen and it will create an image that there is a big demonstration at the games. So in addition to the terrorist problem, which has always been underlying this, is a sense of the games being used as a symbol by those who, for whatever reason, just want to make mischief. That actually bothers them more than most other things at the moment. Michael Clark, in your opinion, are the games going to be secure? Absolutely. I'd I'd be very surprised if anything happens at the Games during the period. I think we may see things happening elsewhere in the United Kingdom which seem to be related to the Games, but I'm not at all worried about the military's role in this. Um, Ask yourself, what would you prefer? To to the Games to be um, supervised by people who are casual labour, who are unemployed at the moment, that's why they can use the job with two days training, as opposed to cheerful members of the best trained army in the world. It's a no-brainer. Of course we feel better with the army in charge. Sorry, Uh, Chris the same question to you? Uh, big threat, say, next week. Uh, when not, the games are not going, they're just about to come up, then you start to get the threats. Something happens, that throws everything into confusion. And then also, when everybody's sort of stood down and relaxed, that's when the second chance comes. Gentlemen, thank you both, and please stay with us. Sit right. Still to come, the pressure builds on Syria's President Assad after three of his inner circle were killed in a bomb attack. And why the Arctic convoy veterans have been given fresh hope in their long-standing campaign for a medal. Now the Defence Secretary Philip Hammond is in the States to pick up Britain's first joint strike fighter. And on his way to Texas to sign for the F-35B, he stopped off in Washington for talks with his US counterpart Leon Panetta. Here's BFBS reporter Will Inglis. US-UK defence cooperation goes far beyond Afghanistan. But perhaps inevitably it's operations there which dominated both Leon Panetta and Philip Hammond's thoughts. We've had a very useful discussion this morning on Afghanistan as we and our ISAF partners prepare to draw down our combat operations by the end of 2014. And in particular as we plan the drawdown in Helmand province where UK forces work so closely uh, and in such an integrated fashion with the US Marine Corps. The special relationship has another dimension, though. From nuclear missiles to Reaper drones, an increasing amount of British kit is made in America. And this trip's about expanding that even further. After two minor U-turns, Britain is again buying the F-35B jump jet. And Philip Hammond's in Fort Worth to sign for the very first one. Despite oft-denied rumours the project is again in trouble, Secretary Panetta is categorical in his support for it. The delivery of this jet is an indication of the considerable strides that we have made. The F-35 represents, I believe, the future of tactical aviation for both of our armed services. And this advanced aircraft's air superiority, its precision strike capability, will help ensure our dominance of the skies for years to come. While Britain's committed to buying three planes for development work, no deal has yet been signed on larger numbers. It's still unclear how many the UK will buy or how much they'll cost. As well said uh, the, in his report just there, uh, Professor Michael Clark uh, from, the, uh, from Brizzy, um, he said that more and more British kit is being produced in America. But according to the MOD, 130 British companies contribute to the supply chain and will support 25,000 British jobs over the next 25 years. Uh, Professor Clark, can we expect more examples of Britain and the US working together like this in the future? 
Certainly for the big stuff, yeah. Um, I mean, remember that uh, we're a, a, a grade A contributor to the whole F-35 program, so we put in £2 billion into the program. And in theory, if the F-35 turns out to be a successful aircraft worldwide over the next 20 to 30 years, we will get a share of the profit. People tend to forget that when they think about the costs. Um, so th there is a sense in which we are one of the few allies that can play these, these procurement games with the United States. Not so many others can but we only play it for the big stuff uh, and I think we will see a bit more of this uh, in the future but the F-35 and, and I think your report is absolutely right to point it out this is the first one of a of an order that we don't know how big the order will be we don't know how successful an aircraft it will be and it will be a big big test of this model of more British American effectively joint procurement through you know, American led companies but with lots of British contributors Christopher Lee some have concerns that the F-35B could be hit by problems to do with America's own defense budget is there any truth in that do you think well I mean the American America's got to cut its defense budget everybody knows that and we're talking in sort of billions the sort of billions that we don't even understand here on paper. Um, it also means that if you cut the order, the American order, let's say for an F-35 in any of its forms, then the unit cost goes up. And that becomes a difficulty because if the unit cost goes up, then we've got to make sure that our deals that we're citing are at a cost that we can actually afford. The thing to em emphasize here is that certainly in Europe, there is no single country that can make its own airplane anymore. You can't do that. You've got to think joint aircraft. And we've done it for years. The Tornado started off as a, uh, the multi-role combat aircraft, the MRCA. Uh, Typhoon is a European project. And so you have to think in these terms that we are in bed with everybody. We do have good financial deals. As, as Mike says, you know, we've got a two billion investment in this. And you sell a few of those, let's say, in the Gulf, you're going to get some of it back. But that's the important thing. And so we've got a direct interest in what the unit cost is, what the politics of it are, whether the, uh, the, the manufacturers can actually sort of hold the project together, and how the military react to this very, very sophisticated aircraft. I mean, some people will tell you, why you got an aircraft like this that's so sophisticated? I mean, if you look at the rest of the world now, you're, you're mostly expecting to fight the uh, second 11. Um, Michael Clark, what are your views on this, on this collaboration between the, the nations on, on future weapons. Yes, it, I, it, I mean, one of the things about the F-35 is that what, what, what uh, Lockheed say about it, the makers, they say that, for instance, you know, this, the, I mean, this will compensate for having to lay off the Sentinel um, airborne warning and control system to some degree, they, because this does it all from the cockpits, that, uh, you know, this aircraft covers those functions that two or three other aircraft would otherwise need to perform. And so, you know, when we think about why do we go in for these very big uh, performances, performance uh, platforms, there are all sorts of potential benefits, but as Chris says, if you can use them, if you really need that degree of complexity. And I think if we are if we are aiming to stay in this sort of game, and we are, partly for political reasons, we have a we're having to work harder, if you like, to pedal faster to 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 be the sort of partner we aim to be with the United States. And we aim to be that sort of partner, rightly or wrongly, for very strategic reasons. And so these sorts of systems um, are partly a symbol, but partly to prove to the Americans that we can still play. We may not have that much money, but we play at the high technical level. And, and certainly Downing Street, you know, feels that sort of pressure pretty strongly.
Let's look further afield now. And the question is, is this the beginning of the end for Syria? Yesterday, three of President Assad's inner circle were killed in a bomb attack and at least 20 of his senior officers have defected. Uh, Michael Clark, first of all, what can you tell us about those killed in the, that bomb attack and how important were those who were killed? Very important because these people, um, you know, you're talking about the, the, the brother-in-law, uh, former defence minister, key advisers to Assad, and they could only have been assassinated by somebody with a lot of good intelligence. So somebody knew exactly where they would be and presumably targeted those people. It's been and and look at the reaction throughout areas of Damascus. I mean, celebrations at this terrorist assassination close to the heart of the Syrian government. As a result of which, the Syrian army from from some of the hillsides began to bombard the suburbs of Damascus. <coughs> this starts to look like Sarajevo <coughs> in that respect. So this is pretty important. And then two other things are really important that, uh, I mean, uh, President Assad has not been seen. Um, it's, it would seem obvious that he needs to be seen in the next few hours, otherwise rumours will start going around that either he's left Damascus or that he's dead. Uh, I don't think that's likely that he's dead, but I mean, he needs to show himself Otherwise, this starts to unravel really very, very quickly. So yesterday was a terrorist attack close to the heart of government. It's had a massive psychological effect on the way people now think about what's going to happen in Syria. Christopher Lee, a serious blow to Assad? Oh, yeah, it is. Um, you, you've got to remember who these guys were. Hassan Taknadi, for example, um, he is an assistant vice president or was an assistant vice president. He was the man that, that chaired the group, the so-called crisis group, uh, and their role was to put down the so-called uprising. And you start to put that lot together and you think, hang on, the whole machinery at top level, the top table has been removed. Now, OK, you put other guys in, but this is the, 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 the people that really matter. The other thing which is, which is interesting at the moment, uh, uh, I mean, Mike was just saying, well, where is Bashar uh, al-Assad? Uh, also, where's Mrs. Assad? Uh, people I've been talking to saying that there are a lot of characters uh, in, for example, the SIS, CIA, etc., NSA, who are looking for her. Uh, might she have gone to Moscow, Petersburg, wherever? Because the classic example of uh, an overthrow is when you start to move the family out. And that would gauge not so much where she is, but if they could, some, somebody could do an eye spot on her they could actually tell whether Assad himself thought this was, you know, we're getting, getting towards the end. And if this is the beginning of the end, uh, that's the sort of key, key, key thing they'd be looking for. Michael Clark has been said often on this programme that the problem in Syria is internal and the international community should stay out of it. Is it starting to resolve itself? Is this the beginning of the end? And your thoughts on, on that mention of Russia as well? Yeah. Uh, Christopher, we seem to have uh, lost our connection down to uh, Russia at the moment. Can I put that question to you? I mean, it, should we be sorting it out? Is it starting to resolve itself without international interference? It could never do it with an outside force going in. You can't solve this thing. It's a totally thing. It's not Libya or, or whatever. You've only got to look at the moment. There are five areas of Damascus itself. Now, imagine anybody thinking about London. If you can imagine firefights going on in, anybody who knows London, uh, Hampstead Heath, Westminster, Lewisham, etc., you know that your capital is under threat, and that is exactly what's happening even now today.
Michael Clark, I think you're back on the line now. Yeah. Um, just to, your thoughts on the international, the international involvement in, in Syria, um, and I think he's just left us again. So if we can come come back to this again, Christopher has always refused to join the international pressure on Assad. I mean, does this prove that Russia is now right? I think Russia will tell you that it's actually been right all the way through. Russians and the Chinese have said, listen, one on principle, you don't involve yourself in the regime change or the fight in somebody else's country. You don't know, for example, how the rebels, how, how actually how popular they are. You know how powerful they are, but you don't know how popular they are. You don't know that people in the rest of Syria might be saying, well, you know, we don't want this lot. We don't want them to take over. The second part of it is that apart from their own in personal interests in, in, in Syria, the Russians have a very good point. We can resolve this by giving the people that are being attacked an option. And it's the option that the, Amer that the Russians think they've actually come to a conclusion over. This is BFBS SIGREP. The Arctic Convoy veterans have been given fresh hope in their long-standing campaign for a medal. Former diplomat Sir John Holmes, who has just published a military medals review for the Cabinet Office, says he hopes a decision on their case can be reached by September. I have said that there is clearly a case there, possibly one of the strongest campaigning cases amongst veterans who feel aggrieved about the way they've been treated in terms of medals. But I have not said they definitely should get a medal. That, that's for, say, for further research. But I think uh, they probably feel that a bit of a barrier has been broken in the sense of the, of the, the, the absolute refusal to reconsider it. Christopher, there are other battles and heroic fights where it could be argued people weren't properly recognised for their efforts. Tell us about the battle for Murbat. Battle of Murbat. Uh, it took place, um, took place this very day, 40 years ago. Um, Mabat is in Amman. It's on the Gulf of, uh, of, of Arabia. And what was happening is that British forces had gone in there to support Sultan Qaboos, who was being attacked um, by, from what the area we'd say now was South Yemen, Aden. Um, and these are the, P, uh, uh, the PDRY. That morning, nine guys from B Squadron SAS were holed up in Mabat um, in the turrets there. And they were attacked by 250, maybe 300, called Adu, the enemy, uh, who decided this was the time to take over Mabat. There was one World War II 25-pounder, which normally takes four guys to load, position, aim, shoot, reload, etc. Um, there was one sergeant, uh, Laba Laba, uh, a Fijian SAS, he made a run for the for the dugout and started to do it by himself. And it was so close. This is eyeball to eyeball stuff. He is actually fighting a, a, a sort of an avalanche of people coming through. Um, today, uh, earlier today, at, uh, at St. Martin's in Hereford, there was a memorial to those guys. Uh, some think they should have a VC. Uh, whether they'll ever get one, I don't know, but it is probably the most heroic campaign and battle the SAS has ever fought. Christopher Lee, thank you very much indeed. If that does come true, then we'll report it here on SITREP. Apologies for losing Professor Michael Clark earlier on on the programme. Apologies for that. That's it for this week's edition of SITREP. We'll be back at the same time next week. Have a very good week, won't you? For me, bye-bye.